Good morning, everyone, again. <laughs> I'm sure you can tell I'm really excited to be back here. <laughs> and um, I think it feels really good to be able to worship face-to-face -face with people and not online Zoom in front of a, a camera. But to everyone who's at home on Zoom, hello. <laughs> it's nice to have everyone. Thank God that we have um, technology that can enable us to, to still be able to connect. Um, obviously, we know that um, Compassion works in very remote areas and in some places, these technologies that we have, the Wi-Fi and all of these things are just not available. So with all the lockdown and the restrictions, there are people who are just totally isolated, you know, and really couldn't come together. But thank God that we're here. It's lovely to see everyone. So great. And thank you so much for having me um, on behalf of Compassion. Pretty much, we've just come to say thank you again. Uh, I know you've been involved in with you know sponsoring. I don't know for how many years now. I know it's quite a while. <laughs> so thank you, and thank you for that consistency. Thank you for the passion. Um, you know, it is not um, taken for granted. It is acknowledged. It is appreciated. And um, you know what you're doing in the lives of of these um, children. Okay, next slide, please. Right, okay, so for those of us who may not know, I'm sure most of us do know, but just, you know, in case there's a few of us who may not kind of have a full idea of, you know, what Compassion is. So Compassion is a, um, an international global organization that focuses on child ad advocacy, um, supporting children in very remote areas, currently 25 countries across the world, across Asia, Africa, and South America mainly. Um, helping to ensure that children are released from poverty in Jesus' name, providing all kinds of support and services. And the last two years have been obviously challenging for a lot of people. And, you know, Compassion has found ways to step up to the challenge, you know, where people couldn't meet children, couldn't go to their project, you know, trying, still trying to make sure that, you know, the needs of people were met. Here in UK, there was the furlough system, uh, you know, it's trying to support people who had lost their jobs and things like that. In many third world countries, there was nothing like that. So Compassion was able to distribute a lot of food packs and medical kits to support people in very remote communities. In some areas they had to cross, you know, by boat and, you know, cycle and all sorts of things just to make sure that, you know, the children and their families are supported. So when I say thank you, it's not just thank you from Compassion um, for what you're doing, but you know, thank you for, for, for um, on behalf of the children. And it's not just them; it's also their families and their communities. Because as a whole, you know, everyone that's connected to a child actually benefits from from you know what you're doing. I always tell the story about my one of my sponsored children, um, children in Ethiopia, when she wrote me and said she now has a mattress that she and her siblings can share and sleep on you know and I wondered what they were sleeping on the whole time so it's the entire family there are families that would request for you know sometimes when money is sent or gift they would say if you can just give us and um, buy us two pigs or something or chickens and then they can breed and that becomes a source of income for this family so it's not just the child it's changing the family and we know the family is the foundation of a community so you change the family you change the community why I personally am attracted to compassion is because it is Christ-centered. Everything that compassion does is focused on releasing children from poverty in Jesus' name. Um, it's, it's also child-focused, so it's tailored to suit the needs of the children as well. 
um, and it's also church-based. So Compassion works with the local church because the local church are they the ones that actually know what the challenges are, what the problems are? Because like I always use the example here in UK, there's the NHS and you can maybe write to your MP and they would respond, you know, but in many other countries, those things are not there. So when people have problems, they go to church or they go to their pastors. And in some communities, you just have maybe one or two. So they take on a lot of the responsibilities. So Compassion works with the local church to make sure that, you know, these families are, are well supported. Next slide, please. Okay, um, and then from the, the um, monthly um, sponsorship, what do the children get? They get formal and non-formal educational opportunities. We've had children that have gone ahead to become, you know, dentists, lawyers, engineers, you know, very like professional um, and roles, you know, even become leaders in their community, in their country, serving, you know, in the government. We've had um, uh, people who have become like going into trades, like, you know, carpenters and, um, you know, have their own workshops and their own businesses and are supporting young people as well. So it, it's, there's a wide range of opportunity that is provided for the children. Um, they're taught all kinds of crafts and trades as well, whatever it is that they, they tend to gravitate towards the support and the training is there. Then they get regular health checkups and hygiene, hygiene training and food. Some of the children, when they come to the project, that's maybe the only meal they will have all day. Um, so they look forward to, to coming. To come in. Hygiene training was so important during the, um, over the last two years because, you know, you go to some of these communities and you're thinking, how do you, you know, how do you enforce lockdown? in this community? How do you tell people to remember to wash your hands, you know? There's stagnant waters right in front of their home. There's all kinds of there's sewage running in, behind someone's house. How do you talk about hygiene, maintaining hygiene, you know, because there's a pandemic? To them, for some of them, they just want to know where they're going to get their next meal from, you know? They can't, there's not much they can do. But, you know, Compassion actually made the effort of actually training people how to, how to make soap, you know, just so many things to help them to say, it doesn't matter what your condition is, you can actually make an effort, you can try and do something to improve your you know, situation. And with the um, hygiene packs that were sent out to family, it helped because most of them got sanitizers and you know, things like that, that they had never got before, they never thought of using. <laughs> Some communities don't even have water. They, go all the way to like a river to fetch water from a, water, a river that's not even that clean, you know, and you should wash your hands, yeah. So, you know, so this, and that's the reality. That's the reality. You know, we're talking about a pandemic and you're exposed to all those kind of things. So having those regular health checkups and the training was so important, you know, and, and it still carries, it still carries on. Then there's an age appropriate Christian teaching and discipleship for the children from as early as possible up to, you know, when they graduate. And then for those that go on to the leadership training program as well, there's a whole lot of training and support and development um, available. And then there's one-to-one -one guidance. And I've obviously talked about the fact that, you know, there's letters written and all of that. It makes so much of a difference to them. So yeah, once again, thank you. And then we can go to the next slide. Okay, so I can just carry on, right? <laughs> okay. So today I'm just going to share on a topic which I've titled This Little Light of Mine. 
Um, and I know that we've been talking about, so your theme for this year has been about, you know, being a light. Um, so yeah, I'm just going to share a lot about, you know, being a light, where does, I mean, where does this whole concept come from? And what does it mean to us? And how can we actually be, be the light? Okay, next slide, please. Great, okay. So let's go on a journey. I like stories. So I'm going to share a few stories this morning. So let's go on a journey back to the beginning, right? Where it all started from. So in the beginning, the Bible says that in Genesis chapter one, the Bible says, if we start from verse one, that the, the earth was without form and it was void and there was darkness, you know, and then God spoke and said, let there be light. And there was light. So that was the first thing as light. That was the first thing before anything else was created. That was the first thing that came into existence before the rest of creation could be formed. That tells us that, you know, light is very important. What can we do without light? You know, how much can we do without light? So that was the first thing, you know, that God put in place when, when, um, when, he, start, when he started off with creation. Okay, and then in John, um, 1 John 1 verse 5, um, it says, this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all, right? And I think that's just amazing, you know, because we are in Christ, we are in God and the light of God shines in us. So we're not walking in darkness. We're not stumbling through our days and through life because we have the light of God. He is light. And that's why when he came, he, he, first thing he, he spoke was into existence was life, it was light, you know, and that's who he is. He is the light of Jesus. Jesus said, I am the light of the world and we have him in, his, in us. So that means that we bring light. We bring, you can imagine if there was just darkness everywhere, you know, just totally, even now it's winter and, you know, people say, oh, it gets dark at four o'clock and you know how it affects people mentally and otherwise just because of that darkness. And then think about a world where there is no light. Yeah, next slide. Okay, so I'm still talking about the beginning. So let's still, you know, go back a little bit and talk about, you know, the journey after God created the world, you know, all of creation and there was light and everything happened. Now we know the story of, you know, what, what happened with the Israelites, how they went into bondage and then they got um, delivered. Um, God used Moses to bring them out. Then God gave Moses an instruction while they were in the wilderness to build a tabernacle, which was, symbolic of the presence of God, you know, being among his people and which was how, how they were going to worship. Yeah? So when they built the um, tabernacle, God gave specific instructions of how everything needed to be set up. And then you had the outer court and then the inner court, and then you had the holy of holies, which was the most holy place. Now, when they were going to build that, you know, Moses has said, um, or God had told Moses to say, all the people who were skilled workers are going to be the ones to build it. And he gave them specific instructions and everything had to be made with pure gold, pure gold. Now in Exodus um, 25, 30, and if you leave, read the whole of Exodus 25, you know, it talks about all the instructions that God gave for setting up that tabernacle and the sanctuary. So in Exodus 25, 37, it said, you shall make seven lamps for it and they shall arrange its lamps so that they give light in front of it. 
So there we talk about light again, very important. And the other thing about the Holy of Holies was that it was separated from the rest of you know, the, the tabernacle. And there was this very thick curtain. So obviously it would have been a bit dark inside. So, but there was supposed to be a candlestick, a candlestick stand that, that had those lights. Um, and then on the altar, there was a fire, which God said the fire must never go out. It always had to be burning. And they were always supposed to provide the oil. The priest had the duty to do that. Um, and then again, in Exodus 35, 14, it's still talking about um, the tabernacle. It then talks about, um, it says also the lampstand for the light and the utensils, the lamps and the oil for the light. All of those things needed to be provided as well. Why? Because it was so important to have light. Now, one of the things I that excites me about being a Christian is... I go back to the book of like Leviticus. I used to read it and just not have an idea what was going on because I'm thinking, isn't it great that we don't have to do all those things anymore? Back in the days, you know, they had to come with a, a lamb or with a goat or with total doves and have all this sacrifice. Maybe this morning we'll have all been queuing up and then maybe Richard would have been the high priest to slaughter the goats on our behalf or something, <laughs> you know, but. Isn't it great that we don't have to do any of those things anymore? Because the Bible says that Jesus came. He was that Lamb of God, you know, who he had, he had to pay the, the, the price for our sins once and for all. So we don't need to do any of those things. We just need to put our faith in him. You know, he's changed everything. We don't have to do all of those things. And they had a system set up that every every you know now and again the priest would come in and do all their duties make sure there was oil and you know all those kind of things and then once in a year the high priest would go into the holies of holies and offer the sacrifices for the people and then they actually tied the string to his leg so that in case he got <laughs> killed while in there because he had been in sin they could pull him out because nobody else could go in and now we don't need to do that anymore. Isn't that just amazing? That was how they lived. I'm like, I can't even remember half of the laws. It was 630 laws. I can't, who can remember 630 laws? You know, I wouldn't have been able to keep up with all of that, but that was what they had to do. And I think about that candle lamp, that lamp stand that they had to build with pure gold and make sure there was oil and the light shouldn't go out and all of those things. But I'm just glad that we are of a new covenant. Yeah, so when we go into Hebrews, Hebrews 9, 1 to 2 says, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances and divine service and the, and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first spot, which, in which was the lampstand, the table, the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. So all those things were there, and those are things that they had to, had to do. But the good news is we don't have to do anything. That's all changed. Jesus has gone in. He was that high priest who used to go in once a year. He's done it once before. We are free. We are free. But, but there is a responsibility on us. Now that we've had Christ pay the price for us, stepping on our behalf. What did Jesus say? You are the light of the world. So we don't need, and I used to think, when I used to, when I used to read about it, I read about a lampstand. I used to think about something small you put on a table. I didn't realize it was actually something big. <laughs> it was like, it was a massive lampstand, you know. Um, but now Jesus says, you are the light, you are the light of the world. He said I was the light, I was the light of the world. But then again, let's go on to the next slide. You know, 
He says in Matthew 5, 14 to 16, he says, you are the light of the world. Jesus also said, I am the light of the world. But then he tells his disciples, you are the light of the world. Because we've got Jesus living in us. So that makes us the light. You know, we are the ones to bring light, right? He says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp, a lamp and put it under a basket. Instead, they set it on a stand so that it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. So now we don't have that tabernacle anymore. It's us, it's our life, it's the way we live, you know, being a light in our communities, shining our, our, our light to all those around us. And you know, it's interesting because over the last, well, two years, let's, let's just go back two years, you know, pandemic and all the things that have happened, you know, and there's been a lot of uncertainty and people are scared and afraid and all kinds of things like that and questions, lots of questions. You know, but one thing I always remember is that the darker the night, the brighter the stars shine. So even in the things that are happening now, that is our opportunity to shine even more as the light of the world. That is an opportunity for us to make a difference in our community to those around us. And you know, we can all you know, talk about different ways in which we can shine as light. Yeah, if, we, if I went around, we did a poll, everyone would have an example of you know, how you could be a good neighbor, how you can give to the poor, how you could you know, volunteer with the food bank. There's so much. And I know that this church does a lot, partnering with other churches in, in you know, the community and helping people, visiting the sick, and so much that is, is done. So, and like I said, I like stories. So I'm gonna share a few more stories. Um, you know, about, you know, shining as, as, as a light. So let's go on to the next slide. Okay, so this is a favorite, one of my favorite stories. We're just going to talk about a few people who have, you know, been a light to their generation or been a light to their community and what the impact of that has been, right, in different ways. So first is Judge Muller. Anybody know about Judge Muller? Yeah? <laughs> okay. Right, okay, so George Muller was a Christian evangelist and he was the founder and director of the Ashley Downs Orphanage in Bristol. He's one of my favorites because he was such a man of purpose, he was such a man of passion, he was such a man of prayer and of faith. So in the times when he lived, there was a lot of poverty and the loss of street children. And he had a burden after he, he became a Christian, had a burden to do something about the children who were roaming on the streets and couldn't have food. So he's built an orphanage, him and his wife, they set up an orphanage. Um, and over the period of time, over about, I think about a 60 year period in his lifetime, um, George Muller is known to have cared for, um, over 10,000 children. And then it says he established 117 schools which offered Christian education to more than 120,000 people. The interesting thing was he wasn't a rich man. He was a regular everyday man like anybody else. He just had a passion and he just had faith. So there were times when, and it's a very interesting story if you want to read it up. Um, and really, there's a book he's written about prayer as well. Um, he, he, when he started the orphanage, he prayed and he said to God that he was never going to go around asking people for money. He's going to trust God to meet all their needs. So he would always pray about their needs, no matter what the need were. And 
God always provided. Sometimes he said he had to wait an hour, two hours, five days, 10 days, 10 years. I think one time he said even up to 25 years. But as long as he prayed, he always expected the answer and waited for the answer and trusted that he would, he would, um, God would provide. There were times that they would have put the children out for breakfast and there was no food. And they would say grace, waiting for food and him trusting God that food would come. And they would share the grace and then there'll be a knock on the door. And someone would say, oh, God woke me up at 4 a.m. to bake bread or my truck's just broken down. Um, I don't know what to do with the milk so you can have it. And in very miraculous ways, God always provided. And that was how God used him to change the lives of so many people. So that's an example of someone with little or nothing, you know, of his own, you know, making such a difference, shining as a light to the extent that even after he died, generations and years and years on, you can still see that light that he started burning bright. Okay, next slide, please. Okay, and then another interesting one um, is um, Martin Reinhardt. So he was a Lutheran pastor in a town called Eilenberg in Germany. And so he became a pastor around that time. Um, Ger Germany was going through a 30, 30 year war period. So imagine war for 30 years. That's almost a half a lifetime, you know, and, um, and this pandemic is nothing compared to what they would have been, you know, because so many people had lost their jobs, you know, so many people had lost their homes, people were, had become refugees. It was a bad situation. Now this little town was a walled city. So because it was, a, it was walled, people ran there to seek refuge. And then that led to overcrowding. And obviously people being homeless and out on the street, there was now an outbreak of a, of a pandemic. And you can imagine for a 30 year war period, right? It was like hopeless, hopeless, hopeless situation. So what he did at the time was that he opened up his home, even if he barely had enough to look after his own family, he opened up his home to a lot of the refugees and victims so that he could, he could support them. And it was quite difficult. So I'm just paraphrasing anyway. So it says, um, so during the height of the, of the severe plague in 1637, um, he was the only surviving pastor. I think initially there were three pastors in the town. In the town, I think one fled for his life; the other died, and he conducted his funeral. And then he was the only one left. Um, and then he says that he was conducting as many as 50 funerals in a day. And over that period, he, he over a year in a year, in a year he, com he com conducted 4,000 funerals, including that of his wife. Anyone would think that such a person would be so heartbroken, you know, frustrated, discouraged, but he did not. He opened his home, struggling to feed even his own family. He was supporting refugee, um, um, you know, the victims and the refugees. And in that time, he wrote to him, now thank we all our God, shall we know that hymn? And that was the time he wrote that hymn because he was trying to encourage people in his home to always remember to be thankful, it was a it was a it was a prayer that they would say before meals, you know. So he was trying to encourage them to be thankful for what they had, no matter how small that it was. So that's an example. I don't know how many people he helped, how many people God used him to save, but I mean that's an example of someone who, in the midst of an adverse situation, was actually shining as a light in his community. 
And then another favorite one of mine. Next slide, please. It's called the church in Stanmore. <laughs> so there's a lovely church I know of in Stanmore that amazes me because, I mean, I, I, I volunteer with compassion and, you know, I've been to a number of places. I've been to different churches, you know, and I've seen amazing things. You know, I've seen all sorts of, you know, people giving and supporting, you know, and it just inspires me. I know this is my second time here physically, <laughs> but I must say that Culver Church really does inspire me, you know, and I really want to just once again, just say thank you for what you're doing in the lives of these children. You know, the consistency, the passion, you know, um, I was looking at the, um, the notice board earlier on and seeing the letter and, you know, all the pictures are there. And it just shows the commitment, you know, that you have towards not just the children, but, you know, compassion as a whole and also to the work of God. So I just want to say thank you. It's making um, a huge change, a huge impact. Sometimes you may never really know how far that impact will go. Majority of the time, you wouldn't know. You know, but for people who actually shine as light, it's almost as if we all have candles and I have, my candle is lighted and I light yours and you light the next person and it can just go on and on and on for generations and you never know how far that will go and the difference that you're making is, it's immense and it's, it's just, it's, it, it just warms my heart every time I think about it. So I've got a picture of three of the children here. I'm not sure if there's another one. Um, but I've got this speech that, uh, that should be slightly older now by now. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just want to say thank you. It's really inspiring what you're doing. Now, someone might say, oh, it's three children, three lives changed for Jesus. Jesus said in the Bible that there's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. And that's the way I say that there's so much joy in heaven over one child who's delivered from poverty in Jesus' name and their families as well, and then their communities. But then let's look at how much one, you know, one child, how important one child, one person is. And then I will tell the final story. So let's go on to the next slide. Okay, so yeah, we'll just stop there. <laughs> so if I said um, the name Edward Kimball, does anyone know who Edward Kimball is? No. Right. If I said Mordecai Han, anybody know who that is? No. <laughs> if I said D.L. Moody, yeah, we got one for D.L. Moody. But if I said Billy Graham, ah, <laughs> more people would know about Billy Graham. But what we don't know is that there was a long line of people involved that led to the salvation of Billy Graham. So the first one was Edward Kimball. Now, who was he? He was a Sunday school teacher. Um, and he was so passionate about, you know, the children. So, and at that time there was a lot of poverty. So many of the children couldn't even go to school. So there was one particular child in his class who was never really paying attention, just seemed really um, distracted, unhappy. So he took interest in him and during the week we went to try and find him where he worked. The boy worked in a shoe shining shop and I think he was about nine, 11 years old, he was quite young. And then he just took special interest in him. And eventually he led him to Christ and, and the boy committed his, his life to Christ. And that boy was D.L. Moody. So next click please. 
So that was Dion Moody. Now, Dion Moody, what had happened was his father got sick when he was, I think, about nine years old and passed away, leaving his mom to raise, I think, 11 children by herself. So he couldn't give, school was out of the question. So he had to get a job to support the family. And then he became a Christian through um, Edward Kimball. Now, D.L. Moody eventually became an evangelist in America and became one of the most well-known evangelists at the time. And he eventually, and he traveled the world preaching the gospel, led thousands and thousands of people to Christ. And then he also set up the D.L. Moody um, um, Bible School in America, which trained a lot of evangelists and missionaries that went out across the world preaching the gospel. Yeah, and next click, please. And then in one of his meetings, a gentleman called um, John Wilbur Chapman also came into his meeting, became um, saved, left everything he was doing, became an evangelist and carried on preaching, you know, as an evangelist, going to places, preaching and um, winning a whole lot of people to Christ. In one of his, um, his um, crusades, um, a young man who was a well-known, next click, a young man who was a well-known um, a um, baseball player called Billy Sunday in America, he was well-known, um, became a Christian, you know. So this was like, wow, because everybody knew Billy Sunday. He was well-known, he was special, he had it all and all of that. But he then became a, a Christian, committed his life to Christ, and then also became an evangelist. So in his preaching, in his message, um, through his um, crusades and, uh, you know, programs and all of that, there was another man, next click, called Mordecai Ham, who also became a Christian, and two, picked up the same fire. So this is like the lights, it's been passed from, you know, down and down and down. So he picked up that same fire, and then continued having his own evangel um, evangelism outreaches and his crusades and all of that. And then one time he set up this massive big tent meeting and he was gonna have a lot of people in there. So there were this group of young boys, teenagers, around 14, 15 years old, they decided they were gonna go there and make trouble. So a group of them went in there, they wanted to make trouble. And one of them said, well, I'm not really going to make trouble, but I'll go in there and just see what happens when they make trouble. So he went in there and then an usher grabbed him and said, come, I'll give you a seat and made him sit somewhere to listen. And that was, next click, that was Billy Graham. And that was how he became, um, he got saved and obviously became um, an evangelist and most of us know how many souls he won to Christ and what impact he made as far as, you know, the preaching of the gospel is globally. Now, next click. This story I've told you happened in a space of about 80 years, just because one man, a Sunday school teacher, took interest in one boy who was having difficulty. And that's how it's just led on and on and on and on. And up until today, we can still see the impact. If anybody had told Edward Kimball that what you're doing, going to this shoe shop to look after this boy is going to influence the world generations yet undone, he probably wouldn't have thought so. He did not know how much difference he was making. So that is how much um, your, your effort, your input, what you're doing in the lives of those children, that's how much of a difference that you could be making. And some of it you would never know. But I believe strongly that one day when you get to heaven, you know, God is going to say, well done, my good and faithful servants. Some of the things that you'll be told, 
you probably would never hear of it this side of eternity. But when you do get to heaven, there's going to be rejoicing, there's going to be celebration. Yeah, so once again, thank you. And the final slide in closing, where it says in Philippians 2, 14 to 16, it says, do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that you may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not wrong or labored in vain. So that's the whole essence of the whole thing is that at the end of the, at the, end of the journey here, we can say that we haven't labored in vain that God can use us as we hold on to his word and hold on to his promises. As the Bible says, it's in a crooked and perverse generation. Yes, there is darkness around. Yes, there is pain. But that's why we're here. We are that light. We carry the light of Christ to bring hope to a dying world, to bring peace, to bring joy. That's why we're here. And that's why we need to, the Bible says they're about holding to the word of life, not to be afraid by the things that are going on around us. Like I said earlier, when we were praying about um, um, Peter, when there was a storm and he saw, they saw Jesus coming and he said, Lord, if it's you, bid me to come. And Jesus said, come. Jesus didn't say to him, it's a bit too risky. Don't go, stay in the boat. Jesus said, come. He didn't wait, he didn't say, oh, wait until the, sun, the, 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 the storm clears and then it'll be safer for you. He said, come. And even if the situations and the circumstances around him had not changed, as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus, as long as he kept his focus, he kept going. So for us to continue to be that light, holding on to the word, keeping our focus on Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith, knowing that, our labor of love will not be in vain. And with that, I'd just like to close and I'd just like to say a quick prayer. Our Father, Lord, I thank you so much for this time and for this opportunity to share with this wonderful brothers and sisters. I thank you so much for this church and for what you're doing. I thank you for this community, because I know that this church is a light in this community, and I know that you will use them in more in multiple ways, more ways that they, that they can imagine. I thank you so much for their interest in the work of compassion. I thank you for the love that they share and that binds them together. I thank you for their passion, their love for you and their love for the things that concern you. I thank you so much for keeping them through the years and I thank you, Lord, because you that begun a good work in them will be faithful to complete it and you will perfect all that concerns them, O oh Lord. I thank you because signs and wonders will follow them. You will do more than they can ask or imagine because you are more than able. We thank you, Lord, for their lives. We thank you for all their um, endeavors, those that are in school, those that are working, those that may be in business, those that may be retired. Father, we thank you and we pray that your presence will always rest with them and that you will prosper the works of their hands and you will grant their heart desires because your word says their expectations shall not be cut off. Thank you, Lord, for an opportunity to fellowship with them one more time, once again. Father, we give you all the praise and all the glory for you are truly worthy. For in Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.